Number one would be knowing God personally and serving him on a regular basis, daily. Number two would be being married to Julie Richard for 26 plus years. Thank you. That's actually for Julie. Number three, number three would be in dad, would be being dad to Emily and to Joe, our kids. And then number four is getting to be the pastor of Lake Hills Church for 21 years now. If you were going to ask me to list the greatest opportunities of my life, the greatest privileges or blessings I have ever known, it wouldn't take me very long to get to number four. I, there, there are some others, but they, they pale in comparison to those four. I, I wonder this morning what your list would look like. If somebody said, what are the greatest opportunities that you've ever been given? Now, when I think about my list, I think about, you know, number one, I, I can't imagine, it's hard for me to conceive of the fact that the, the God of this universe, the creator, the King of kings and the Lord of lords made me on purpose and desires that he designed me for a relationship with him. And that's what he wants and that's what I get to experience because of Jesus Christ. It's, it's mind-blowing when you stop and think about it. I think about being married to Julie for 26 years and it's, it's hard to believe that it's already been 26 years, but for 26 years we have laughed, we have cried, we have prayed, we have planned, we have worked, we have parented, we have been to counseling, we have done a little bit of everything for 26 years. To be a dad, to, to get to be responsible as a parent for lives and for Emily and Joe to discover and to develop the calling that God has placed on their lives personally, and then to, to get to see them, you know, take wing and leave the nest, so to speak. It's, it's really exciting as we think about them stepping into adulthood and, and off of the payroll. Julie and I are about to get a raise, and it's, it's exciting when you think about it. Um, pastoring a church. 21 years ago, I had no idea everything that that meant. People ask, you know, what's it like to pastor a church versus what you thought it would be like? And the word that I, the only answer I can think of is just more. It's more fulfilling. It's more rewarding. It's more completing. It's more work. It's more, it's just more than anything I could have ever imagined. Now, your list may look similar to that. It may differ in some places, but I promise you, I know something about your list of the greatest opportunities in your life. That the greatest opportunities in your life have cost you dearly. Opportunity costs. I want you to look at your neighbor with a smile and time change Sunday enthusiasm and tell them, opportunity costs. Opportunity costs. To... To follow Jesus costs something. To, to be married for 26 years blissfully and wonderfully, believe me, there's a cost. If, if somebody had sat Julie and me down before we got married and said, here's the challenges you're going to face. Here's the amount of counseling it's going to take for your marriage to thrive and to flourish. 
Here's how exhausting and expensive children are going to be. That's the greatest birth control that anybody could ever come up with. If somebody had said, Mac, let me just tell you what the next 20 years of pastoring are going to look like. Here, here's the, here are the victories and the, the opportunities that are going to be there. But, man, let me tell you about the heartbreak. Let me tell you about the, the cost that's associated. Man, I don't know that anybody would sign up for that because the fact of the matter is the greatest opportunities that God presents in our lives always carry with them opposition. The greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. Now, for us as a church family, over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Four ATX, and we've been kind of hitting refresh on our calling, our purpose as a church, what it is that we're called to, to, to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. That, that's why we exist. That's why we were formed. That's why we are sustained. That's what drives us, all of those things. And also included in that conversation is the fact that every single person created by God has a calling on their life. There, there are opportunities that God has specifically ordained just for you. And throughout the series, we've, we've looked at this idea of calling and purpose through the lens of the life of Nehemiah. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, first of all, just by way of review, Nehemiah was a fascinating cat. He was an actual historical figure. He was an Israelite who lived under Persian captivity about 450 years before Jesus. Persia, of course, is what is now modern-day Iran. And while Nehemiah was living in Persian captivity, he was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful person on the planet at that time. This Persian empire ruled as much of the planet as anybody. And it was while Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to the king that he received reports from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which of course was kind of the, the epicenter of Israel's identity spiritually, nationally, politically. And the reports that Nehemiah received were not good. The report was that Jerusalem lay in rubble, in in ruins. More specifically, that even the walls that were supposed to provide protection for Jerusalem, the walls themselves were crumbled and the gates had been burned with fire. And it was this report that, that seared something into the mind and the heart of Nehemiah. And, and Nehemiah received from God not only this report of Jerusalem, but Nehemiah received a calling from God, an opportunity from God to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around God's city. Now, it was a, a daunting task, as you might imagine. I mean, there was, there was the incredible obstacle of the fact that Nehemiah was a slave. How does a slave get the materials and the people and travel to go fulfill this crazy calling, this vision that God gave to him. And as you read the narrative of Nehemiah, from Nehemiah 1 to the end of the book and Nehemiah 13, it's not a long book, but you see opposition over and over and over again, rearing its ugly head. First of all, the fact that Jerusalem lay in ruins tells you something about the circumstances of the opposition. There were nations that wanted Israel wiped off the map. But more specifically, more, more particularly, Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah was a slave. Nehemiah had to get 900 miles from Susa, the city where he served at the king's palace, all the way to Jerusalem. But once he got to Jerusalem, he was just getting started with the opposition. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter number four. You may have it on your phone or an actual book. In Nehemiah chapter four, we see the opposition to this opportunity that God has placed before Nehemiah really crystallized. As I said, it's, it's there throughout the entire book, and it's, it's kind of alluded to and introduced in Nehemiah chapter 2. But in Nehemiah chapter 4, it, it comes, to a, comes to a head. I mean, it reaches its full fruition and crystallization in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is what the Bible says. But when Sanballat and Tobiah... And the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious and they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Now, as you read Nehemiah, there, there are three names that pop up over and over and over again. There's Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. First of all, can we just take just a quick time out? Those are some names, aren't they? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Geshem. Can you imagine if your name were Geshem? Tell your neighbor right now, don't be no Geshem. You know, names are, names are significant. I, I remember one time I asked my grandmother. I, I said, I was, I don't know, like six or seven years old, and I learned that, you know, everybody has a middle name. I said, Mimi, what's your middle name? She goes, I'm not telling you. What do you want for dinner? I said, well, Mimi, I'm serious. What's your middle name? She goes, I'm not telling you. What do you want for dinner? And she would not tell me her name. My grandparents lived in Beaumont. I got home to Houston with my mom. I said, Mom, Mimi wouldn't tell me her middle name. And she goes, yeah, I know. She's not going to. Don't ask her again. It's like, what's the deal? She goes, Mac. Your grandmother's middle name is Olive. I said, like, like olive oil from Popeye? She goes, yes, she hates it. She won't say it. Don't ask her again. Olive. Caroline. She went by Carolyn. Obviously, Carolyn, that's a cool name. But Olive, no. She wasn't having any of it. Geesham. Geesham. Hey, buddy. I mean, that's a horrible name. Sanballat, though. Sanballat was a fascinating guy. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Samaria that became the, the Samaritans who were the, the hated arch enemies of, of Israel. And as such, when Nehemiah showed up in Jerusalem, remember he came from Artaxerxes, the, the most powerful person on the planet, with papers for safe passage. Basically, Nehemiah traveled under the seal of Artaxerxes, so people knew, don't mess with Nehemiah. So when Sambalat hears that this guy comes in with papers from Artaxerxes. Sambalat, governor of Samaria, is kind of like, who's this hot dog think he is? I mean, what, what, are you, what are you thinking? So there's this automatic inbred hostility towards Nehemiah. And Sambalat starts to marshal the forces of opposition, and he brings in Tobiah, and he brings in Geshem, and he brings in the Arabs, and he brings in the people from Ashdod, and he brings in all these people. He goes, we are going to shut 
down the wall-building project in Jerusalem. Let's go. And Nehemiah gets wind of this. He gets word of this. You know, when you undertake a massive project, to hear that somebody is automatically and intentionally, deliberately opposed to it, that, that is incredibly, it can be incredibly discouraging. But as discouraging as external opposition is, there is nothing like internal opposition to create discouragement and disheartening situations. Look at what happens in verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Can you hear the whining in the original Hebrew? The workers are getting tired. Of course the workers are getting tired. They're working. <laughs> Work is hard. You might want to write that down. Work is hard. It's supposed to be tiring. That's why we sleep. But this is not unique to Nehemiah. This is not unique to any leadership position anywhere in the history of humanity. Go back to, to Moses. Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. They're, they're going into the promised land. And yet, they're in the wilderness. The Bible says over and over again that they grumbled against Moses and against God. The nation of Israel just delivered from slavery. is like, Moses, why did you bring us out here to the desert for us to die? At least we had food to eat in Egypt. Egypt, home sweet home, Egypt. And Moses is kind of like, let me, let me get this straight. You're upset because God is giving us manna every day. Quail fly in with jalapenos under their wings and bacon wrapped around their breast every day. And you want the food back in Egypt where you were a slave? That's what they were asking for. They would rather go back to the familiarity of slavery. But it wasn't just Moses. Think about Job. Job, you've heard people talk about the patience of Job. Job who lost his wealth. Job who lost his children. Job who lost his, his health. And it was, it was against this backdrop that Job's wife, you want to talk about internal opposition? His wife, in his deepest moment of spiritual need, his wife said, Job, you know what? Maybe you should just curse God and die. Thanks, hon. I mean, she was a peach, wasn't she? People talk about the patience of Job because of everything he suffered. I think Job's greatest suffering was the fact that she stayed. Of all the stuff Job could have lost. I mean, seriously. But, but it wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just Job. It wasn't just Nehemiah. Remember, Jesus. It, it, was, it was Jesus. Now, the crowds deserted him. And the religious watchdogs hated him. But it was, it was one of his own. It, it was one of his own that it was one of his own that he had 
entrusted with the financial health and welfare of the ministry. That one who betrayed him for just a handful of money. It, it was not just that one. It, it, was, it was the one that Jesus nicknamed the rock, Peter. Remember, he had said he had prophesied about Peter the rock. He said, I'm going to build the church on you. But it was the rock. It was the rock who denied on three separate occasions even knowing Jesus. Yeah. You, you can lob shells from outside the camp all day long, but it's a whole nother deal when the rumble is in your jungle. And, and Nehemiah felt this profoundly and personally. And, and he had to deal with that internal opposition. But he wasn't through with the external. Look at verse 11. Meanwhile, so, oh, by the way, our enemies were saying before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. So there's external, there's internal. Now there's more external. Look at verse 12. The Jews who lived near the enemy, these are our people, they came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. They're coming from everywhere. You know what this is? This is I love it when this happens. I just want you to know, I've heard some people who are saying, dot, dot, dot. You know what I love to do when people say that? And it happens in work. It happens in church. It happens all the time. I've heard some people who are saying, really? Who? Well, I, I, I don't want to say. What are you, fourth grade? If it's real, let's talk about it. Let's put it on the table. That's what was happening here. The Jews who live near the enemy. I've heard some people saying, I've, I've heard they're, they're coming. We don't want to shut that down. It's unbelievable. Here's the immutable law. The immutable law. The greater your opportunity, the greater your opposition. The bigger your calling, the bigger your conflict. The, the huger your responsibility, just, just know, the huger your resistance. That, that's just a law of life. And I think especially if you're younger, if you haven't yet stepped fully into your calling, for you to know this on the front end is an incredible encouragement. Just know that it's coming. If you've, if you've you know, a few years down the road like I am, and you, you know, it's just, it's just part of it. it is, this is the cost of doing business with God. It's the cost of doing business for God. Opportunity costs. Now, some of you may have noticed something. Nehemiah chapter 4. I read Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 7 and 8, and then we read verses 10, 11, and 12. And some of you are kind of freaking out right now. It's like, where's verse 9? You skipped verse 9. And yes, I did. But I skipped it for such a time as this, because we're going back to verse 9. I, I want you to see a pattern in Nehemiah's life. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Nehemiah says this, But, this is a huge biblical but. But, everybody say but. But, 
But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. So Nehemiah, his first step in the face of opposition was to pray. You know what this tells me? This tells me that Nehemiah was regularly and consistently connected to God in prayer. You see, when you face opposition and you haven't been regularly and consistently connected to God, that prayer is a little harder to lift up. I mean, I mean, personally. It's one thing to say, oh Lord, please save me, please help, I'm, I'm here. But he said, we prayed to our God. There was this connection that Nehemiah had with the people of God. He was invested with them. He had invested in them. And they were connected to God. They prayed to God. And, and we defended ourselves. We guarded the city day and night. Prayer is never a substitute for work, ever. In God's economy, they go hand in hand every single time. Remember, faith without works is um, faith without works. Faith, if you don't back up what you say you believe, faith without works, oh yeah, dead. Isn't that annoying? And I'm not talking about the sound. I mean, people who say they have faith, but they don't have any works to back it up, that is so annoying. Don't nobody want to be around that? People, now, let me say this, too. I love it when people go, you know why I don't go to church? Hypocrites. A lot of hypocrites in the church. Here's how to answer that. You know what? We got room for one more. There's always room for one more hypocrite. Of course, we are called to a relationship with a morally flawless, perfect God. That's what we're called to. Be holy because I am holy, God says. I haven't gotten there yet. We are a work in progress. But man, we're doing it together. We're connected like Nehemiah. We prayed to our God and we worked. Look at Nehemiah 4, 13 through 14. Therefore... I stationed some of the people. I want you to notice the leadership of Nehemiah. The leadership. Nehemiah said, I'm going to put you where you're going to go. They didn't vote on it. It wasn't like, you know, committee meetings. Ugh. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Then, as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know, I said, listen, we're going we're gonna to put people in strategic locations. Don't you know that when he said, I want you and your family to guard the wall, build the wall right by your home over here, 
Don't you know somebody stuck up his hand and goes, you know what, I would rather be over here by the sheep gate if we could, please. Because like, we don't really like our neighbors too much, and so we'd love to work over here. He was like, hey, get to work. We got work to do. Go. I stationed people. I positioned people. We looked at it strategically. But what was he telling them? This isn't just about the wall. The wall is, is important. The wall is a tool. But ultimately, this wall, the rebuilding of this wall, this is about your home. This, this is about your families. This is about our identity as the people of God. This is an expression of who we are. So you take care of that section. Elsewhere in the book of Nehemiah, it says that they worked on the wall with a spear in one hand and a trowel in the other. I mean, that, that is multitasking to the nth degree. But that's what they did. When you face opposition, you have to be willing to multitask. You can't get distracted from the calling, the opportunity that God's put in front of you. You've got to stay at it. Stay at it. Now, Nehemiah chapter 4, like I said, is kind of the, the fullest expression of the opposition that they faced. But in Nehemiah chapter 6, there, there's this incredible exchange that is too important for us to miss. In Nehemiah chapter 6, this is what the Bible says. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come. Now, they, remember, these are their enemies. These are the guys who are plotting to kill them. And now they send this sweet little message. Oh, Come and let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, the plain of Ono is an actual place kind of west-northwest of Jerusalem. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. One more time. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. Stay on the wall and stay on the wall. I wonder, do you know what your wall is? Do you, do you know what wall God has called you to in this world? Do you know your calling from God? A lot of us, man, we just get up and go every day just to get up and go. That's what you do. Just, we just get up and go. We just, we just get up and go. A lot of us parent, like, like, like we, we make choices in our discipline, in our, in our spending, in our time. Like, like the whole goal of parenting is for our kids to get into college. is great. That's fine. But I'm, I'm pretty sure 
God made them for something more than going to college. I hope. Listen, with my grades, I really hope I'm here for something more than just going to college. But if you know what wall God has called you to, if you, if you, if you know your purpose, then, then the opposition to the opportunities that God puts in your path, that, that, those, are, those are details. Nehemiah conducts a Ph.D. seminar in facing down opposition. Nehemiah shows us that the, the best weapons in our fight against opposition are prayer and purpose and performance. Prayer and purpose and performance. Intimately, regularly, consistently connected to God. Knowing our why. Why, why are we doing what we're doing? What, what's the wall that we're supposed to be on? But then also our performance. And Actual work combined with the why. That's how you combat the opposition. But here's the great thing about knowing your wall. When you know your wall, when you understand the call that God's placed on your life, it clarifies everything. And as God clarifies what we should be working toward and working on and praying for, then he also simplifies. It's, it's really easy. I told you, I've, there are four great opportunities God's given me. You're looking at a very, very simple man. It's not complicated. It's not easy, but it ain't complicated. If I'm not working on one of those four things, now, every now and then I, I may fish or, you know, hunt, provide meat for the family for winter, but, but the fact of the matter is, I know what wall I need to stay on. Stay on the wall. I cannot come down. I can't. I can't come down. Kind of sounds like Easter, doesn't it? Doesn't it, doesn't, it, doesn't it kind of sound like Easter that Jesus was on the cross, and, and on the cross, of course, he became my sin and your sin, and, and he was on the cross, and we know that because he became our sin that he was alienated from God the Father. God the Father is morally perfect and flawless and can't have any connection to sin. So in that moment Jesus became our sin, they were separated and because he was separated from God, he died. But, but he, he stayed on the cross until that was accomplished. Now, Easter, of course, is the resurrection. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But before you get to the empty tomb, 
You have to go through the cross. And it was on the cross that Jesus was carrying out a great project and he couldn't come down. He couldn't come down until he had accomplished everything that God had called him to. But he rose again. He rose again, and he rose again with the promise of a new life for anyone who would believe in him, that they would never die, but they would have eternal life beginning right here and right now. He was carrying on a great project, and he would not come down until it was done. I want to ask you, if you will, bow your heads for just a brief moment. And I want to ask you to not stir or, or move around for any reason. Because in this moment, God is doing something in people's lives. And, and I'm just grateful to every one of you who is not moving, who's not being a distraction to what God is doing right now in somebody's life. But if you're here today and you've never accepted the gift, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of new life in Jesus, then as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to receive personally and definitively the forgiveness of God in Jesus. It, it's, it's very, very straightforward. It, it happens in a moment of commitment, in a moment of confession, of committing your life. That's just, that's just everything to Jesus. In confessing your sins, acknowledging them to the one who already knows it, but in acknowledging, you connect with what he did on the cross for you. And then on the other side of that prayer, you just begin living in that relationship. If that's where you are this morning, then we invite you to pray. To just pray right where you're sitting. Something like this in your own words. Just say, Jesus, just silently talk to him. Just right where you are. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for staying on that wall, the cross. Thank you for carrying out that great project. And so I commit my life to you. Jesus, I confess my sin to you. And I receive I accept your forgiveness, all of it, and I will follow you with everything I have. 
Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. If that was your prayer, then I want to invite you to just allow us to be the church with you. A couple of ways that you can do that is to fill out the connect card that's in your program this morning. If you'll open it up, you'll see there on the inside, about halfway down, there's a place to indicate, I I committed my life to Christ this week. If you'd fill that card out and tear it off at the perforation along the fold, and then just before you leave, hand it to one of our ushers. Just take a brief moment to make a personal connection. But then second of all, as our heads are bowed, just for another moment, if you would just raise your hand. If that was your prayer of commitment, of confession, would you just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head? And know that as a church, we want to help in any way that we can. We want to be the family of faith with you. And so in this moment, we celebrate that, we honor that. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.